You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, as part of a special panel session on Shakespeare in Ireland, a paper by Emer McHugh from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled Performing Shakespeare in Ireland in 2016. Othello at the Abbey Theatre. The panel was introduced by Professor Willie Maley from the University of Glasgow. The next speaker then is Eamon McHugh of NUI uh, Galway. And Eamon McHugh is a graduate of NUI Galway and the Shakespeare Institute, University of Birmingham. She returned to NUI Galway in 2014 where she's a PhD researcher and tutor at the Centre for Drama, Theatre and Performance. Her research, funded by the Irish Research Council, looks at the cultural politics of Irish Shakespeare performance after the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. Her research interests include early modern performance studies, contemporary Irish and British performance, theatre history and historiography, actors in the archive and audience reception studies. She's a contributor to reviewing Shakespeare and Shakespeare in Ireland, and she currently serves on the steering committee for the Society of Theatre Research's New Researchers Network. Okay, Emma. For this paper, I'd like to fast-forward everyone from the 17th century right up until now, to 2016, this very big year. And what I'd like to do today is to offer up some thoughts on how Irish Shakespeare performance allows us to explore issues surrounding authenticity, traditionalism and iconoclasm in early modern performance history and practice. And the question is, what would we consider as traditional or iconoclastic in an Irish or Shakespearean context? And should Irish and Shakespearean be two two distinct categories? And how do Irish theatre practitioners conceive the staging of Shakespeare? I can't promise concrete answers to to these questions today, but I'm hoping to start a conversation at least. And, as you know, I'll be using the Abbey Theatre's production of Othello, directed by Joe Dowling and starring Marty Ray as my case study, using it as a way to explore these issues. Um, To offer some context... Othello was initially announced as part of the Abbey's Waking the Nation season late last year, the same season that gave birth to the Waking the Feminist movement. In some ways, choosing Othello was not surprising to an academic year. After all, Willie Maley, um, Dina Rankin, Stephen O'Neill and Andrew Hadfield, among others, have explored and evaluated the play's many Irish connections. Geoffrey Fenton's source text and Hugh O'Neill as a possible stand-in for Othello being pertinent examples. And it's also interesting considering the data that Naomi just saw in, the, in, her, in, her, in her paper. However, the press release for the season reads like this. On the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, we are proud to present his State of the Nation play Othello by William Shakespeare. Internationally acclaimed director Joe Dowling, the dead, and former artistic director of the Abbey Theatre, returns to direct this story of love, jealousy, betrayal and revenge. Irish audiences will recall this famous line, I have done the state some service. They know it. No more of that. 
So what is being alluded to here is Charles Hawhey's um, final address to the, to the doll upon his resignation as Taoiseach in 1992, in which he quoted those same lines. And indeed, the Abbey's literary manager, Jessica Trainer suggested this as a pertinent context, claiming that the line then has a, per- a huge resonance with Irish people that's not necessarily apparent to the wider world. So, it's interesting that the Abbey are drawing on what they consider to be particularly Irish resonances to sell this production. And indeed, I have done the state some service was the initial poll quote on the Abbey website before it was replaced by Oh Beware My Lord of Jealousy. It is unclear if the Hawhey quote was the sole basis for the Abbey conceiving Othello as a state of the nation play as that rhetoric disappeared from the theatre's website in the run-up to its opening. And it was replaced by this. On the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, we are proud to present this contemporary seller featuring Peter Mason as a fellow. Internationally acclaimed Joe Dowling returns to the Abbey Theatre to direct this story of love, jealousy, betrayal and revenge. Come experience one of the greatest plays ever written. So perhaps this change was just a natural result of the rehearsal process. But here, any instance of commentary on the state of the nation, whatever that might have been or whatever, seems to, have been, seems to be absent in favour of emphasising Shakespeare 400, the return of the Abbey's former artistic director, Joe Dowling, to the theatre, the casting of Peter Mason, who was a former fellow at the Guthrie, Guthrie Theatre, and simply placing one of Shakespeare's works as contemporary and one of the greatest plays ever written. I'd argue that this could be a conservative approach to selling the production, although in the broader context of Shakespearean theatre, is it conservative then in the context of Irish theatre? And that's a question I'm still thinking about, and maybe some of you have thoughts on that too. So if we zero in on Dowling's appointment to, to direct this production, it comes after a string of very conceptualised experimental Shakespeare productions at the Abbey in recent years, and generally by younger Dublin-based directors. So to take a few examples, 2013 saw Selena Cartmill direct Owen Rowe in King Lear with actual wolfhounds. 2014 brought Wayne Jordan's Twelfth Night in a production that was an unabashed response to Pantygate with bright colours, a queer aesthetic and a barbershop, barbershop quartet version of the prodigy's Firestarter. And <laughs> it actually happened. It actually was quite effective. And just last year, 2015 saw Pan Pan's artistic director Gavin Quinn directing Midsummer Night's Dream, which set the play in a hospice for the elderly. And Quinn himself is widely known for his post-dramatic approach to Hamlet, King Lear and Macbeth for Pan Pan. As Patrick Lonergan has surmised, the tendency for Shakespeare directors at the Abbey is to be faithful to the script, but innovative in design. Compared to the likes of Cartmel, Jordan and Quinn, Joe Dowling's approach is hardly post-dramatic or experimental. But... He is widely known for his Shakespeare productions at the Abbey in the 70s and 80s, while he served as artistic director. Particularly his Merchant of Venice in 1984, which starred Cyril Cusack, as well as A Midsummer Night's Dream, a play he's directed multiple times, and which has been labelled as his signature production. In 1995, Dowling took over the Guthrie Theatre in Minneapolis, a theatre founded by the actor Tyrone Guthrie, and which is famous for its Elizabethan-style thrust stage. I'm not sure if you mentioned this right, but bear with me. The, the Vertale, where he directed multiple Shakespeare productions as well as Irish-American pay- plays until 2015. 
And indeed, he directed Othello for the Guthrie in his 2003-2004 season and has been labelled by current Abbey personnel as a seasoned director of Shakespeare. And also, I should state, he had not directed Peter Mason in a title role prior to this production. So, it's notable that for the 2016 season, the theatre's outgoing artistic director, Fiat McNeil, drafted in someone who was not only a large part of the Abbey's history, but also a large part of its history of Shakespeare performance, and also someone who's gone on to direct Shakespeare several times outside of the National Theatre. A safe pair of hands where Shakespeare's concerned, if you will. Another pertinent context is the casting of Marty Ray as Iago, who, despite his absence from the blurb you just seen, I'd argue became a major selling point for Irish audiences. I'm sure many of you have seen him perform as Richard II in George Shakespeare last year, for which he drew rave reviews and won an Irish Times Theatre Award for Best Actor. The amount of reviews that declare him astonishing, scene-stealing, magnificently measured, superb, I pretty much could go on all day reading out all the, all the nice things people said about Marty Ray's performance. They're extensive. So I'd be here all day. But it seems now that the success of his performance conferred a sense of Shakespearean authority upon him, which is perhaps an authority we can attach to Dowling as well. And this is a concept I draw from the work of the Shakespeare performance scholar W.B. Worthen. In his seminal work, Shakespeare and the Authority of Performance, Worthen suggests that, given the literary and cultural status of Shakespearean drama, the production of a Shakespeare play generates intense and informed debate about the relationship between texts and stage production, a debate that usually centres on issues of legitimacy, power, tradition and cultural hegemony. Shakespearean dramatic texts are positioned in English-speaking culture in such a way as to inspire the kinds of questions of the regulatory use of authority in performance. Worthen here is largely concerned with the authority of the Shakespeare text itself in performance here. But I'm interested in the authority conferred upon the actor who has proved their mettle, so to say, in performing Shakespeare, that can stand alongside what, what he calls institutionalised Shakespeare. Institutionalised Shakespeare, according to Worthen, generally applies to Anglo-North American performance, such as um, performance in theatres in Stratford-upon-Avon, London, and Stratford in Ontario. Richard II wasn't the first Shakespearean role of Ray, certainly. As you can see, he played Hamlet in Second Age for 20, like Second Age in 2012, which, for which he also won an Irish Times Theatre Award. And of course, he's a classically trained actor, having graduated, graduated from RADA. But it's interesting to see the snowballing effect after Richard. A month after George Shakespeare closed, Ray ran a workshop on Shakespearean verse speaking at the McLally Theatre for actors as part of Galway Culture Night. And his rave reviews for Richard and his award for Hamlet were used as selling points. Then, of course, he was cast in Othello and then invited to participate in the Abbey Theatre and UCD's annual Shakespeare lectures during the run of the, run of the show, where he provided readings in Farrakhan Cooper's lecture on gesture on a Shakespearean stage. There's a sense here that people trust Ray with Shakespeare, that they trust him with the Shakespearean text. And whereas Worthen's concept of an institutionalised Shakespeare generally applies to Anglo-North American Shakespeare performance, I would apply this in an Irish context to Ray, and of course also to Dowling and his work. As Abigail Ruxin Woodall suggests, a proximity to the Shakespearean text, the Shakespearean stage, or even the man himself has been cited as a measure of authority and seen as providing a stamp of validation. So, instead of 
emphasising the experimentation that directors such as Cartmel, Jordan and Quinn can bring to the classical text, the emphasis here is on two Irish petitioners who are particularly well known for their Shakespearean work, perhaps even considered authorities in their respective circles. Now, I'd like to move on to the, to the production itself and how we can use it to explore issues of authority, authenticity, traditionalism and iconoclasm in Shakespeare performance practice in an Irish context. And I'd like to start with its set design. So let's have a look at Ricardo Hernandez's set. So as you can see, it's very bare, very minimal, and has two sets of audience seats on either side. For a frame of reference, if we return to Dowling's former base to Guthrie, the theatre was built by Tyron Guthrie and set designer Tanya Mozovich in 1963. And, according to Dennis Kennedy, he used the same spatial concepts and profited by their experiences building a thrust stage for the Stratford Festival in Ontario. In a programme note, Dowling calls his predecessor a true pioneer, and in, in Minneapolis, he created a perfect stage for Shakespeare production. Surrounded by the audience on three sides, the staging demands a direct relationship with the audience and creates an intimacy where the language becomes more important than the scenic effects. So, on a regular basis, I was able to indulge my passion for Shakespeare by directing more than ten productions on that magnificent stage over the years. I'd also root this design concept within what we could call the authenticity movement in Shakespeare performance and an attempt to, to evoke and replicate early modern styles of staging practice. And these styles of practice are exemplified by thrust stage design with minimal adornments and these are kind of elements that yeah, like, um, you can kind of see in the set there. Um, according to Rooks and Woodall, the Elizabethan revival, spearhe- spearheaded by director William Powell in the 19th century, marks the beginning of an ongoing desire to return to early modern theatre practices and recreate, recreate Elizabethan performance practices. And here we can see Powell's production of Measure for Measure, using like, early modern costumes, and it's also very, very minimal stage of pillars, and it's kind of very... Like um, visually reminiscent of Elizabethan style stage. Rooks and Woodall states how Paul's attempts to recreate, recreate these practices can be seen in original practices productions at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, as well as the construction of, in the past 30 years, of a number of theatres based upon the model of the Elizabethan stage. And these include the uh, Royal Shakespeare Theatre and the Swan Theatre, both at the RSC, and the Royal Playhouse at Bankside. And of course, the Ghost 3 uh, falls within that remit. So it's no surprise then to see a similar design for Dowling's, Dowling's Othello, except in this case, this sort of stage style is recreated on the stage itself, with a select number of audience members who are experiencing this production in this mode, whereas the majority are watching a proscenium-style production. So... While Ray Zayago was interacting with audience members on stage, like to give one example, he screamed, like uh, he picked one theatre goer who was sitting on stage every night, and then he would scream "Divinity of Hell" in their ear. So, <laughs> yeah, I was not one of those, thank God. But yeah, so so basically, this intimacy is not shared with all audience members, and thus not entirely successful. And indeed, Dowling highlighted his difficulty with the auditorium in building this intimate rapport with the audience member. Dare I say it, he told the Irish Times, there is an inflexibility about the Abbey stage. I think they've done wonders with a new auditorium, but there's a size and scale to it that when you actually have to only two people on it, it's very hard to get any intimacy. 
So the implication here, perhaps, is that Prusini Marx's style does not lend itself to an authentic, whatever that may mean, Shakespearean experience in the theatre. In a podcast interview, Ray talked about Dowling's approach to staging Shakespeare, citing his own feeling of confidence in the material. He knows it works. He doesn't panic and look at that brilliant Abbey stage as empty. Shakespeare works best with a visually empty stage, and because of it, the language is allowed to come to the fore. So it's notable that Ray emphasises Dowling's confidence with an ability to handle Shakespeare, whilst also suggesting how Shakespeare should be performed in a mode very similar to this production he seems to imply. However, it is noteworthy that the production's aesthetic in terms of costume and time period is somehow indistinct. It is a mishmash of, to quote Peter Crawley in the Irish Times, everything from military uniforms that could be Irish Free State Desert Edition to 1940s pleated dresses and contemporary suits without much discernible reason. So, um, Othello and his subordinates, like, uh, uh, wore army uniforms. Desdemona and Amelia were, were constantly seen in pleated dresses aiming for the aesthetic of indeterminate 20th, 20th, 21st century wife. Whereas Bianca, as you see here, um, sported hoop earrings and a red summer dress, perhaps in a very heavy-handed attempt to position her as a so-called Dublin trollop or a scarlet woman. And this is further accentuated by Liz Fitzgibbon's Northside Dublin accent that she used for the role. But it could be said the accent was the closest the production got to a form of concept. Both Othello and Iago's identities, I'd argue, were also defined by the way they spoke. Peter Mason, having played the role a number of times, and most recently at 2014 at the Guthrie, suggested to the Times that in his excerpt here, no one really knows where Othello's from. The time before last I did it, it was pretty Game of Thronesy, big pallets and boots and swords, and he played it with a full-on mixture of a Moroccan and a sub-Saharan and Western African tonality. But here he's playing against a Belfast accent Iago, so he only stretched it so far. I decided to exotify him just a little bit to give a sense of the outsider. If I'd just spoken in an American accent, I think it would be very confusing and unfair to the world that we've created. Given that I'd argue that race does not factor as a major issue in this production, it's interesting that Mason utilised what he saw as exotification as a way of delineating Othello's outsider identity in an Irish theatrical context. In the case of Ray, he also positioned his Iago through the way he spoke, through using a working-class Belfast accent for the role. He described Iago as having a working-class chip in his shoulder and Othello's an outsider. That's why the accent was an important thing. To Ray, this way of speaking is very much an accent to me, fitted with someone who's that angry. The Belfast that I remember is definitely violence, and a threat of violence was currency. There's a hardness in it, and an anger in it, and there's a push against resistance in it. Iago feels like he has to push against the resistance as well. Seeing that the majority of the cast play their roles in softer Southside Dublin accents, Rebecca Murray's Desdemona being a pertinent example, this production uses tone, voice and accent to establish an easily identifiably Irish context for Irish audiences, and thus position Othello and Iago accordingly within the world of the production. When asked about this indistinctness and situation in this production, and its refusal to subscribe to any particular concept, 
Downing cited his desire to keep the focus on the text. If you don't choose to play it in Elizabethan dress, then you have to find a period, and then you have to justify that period. Ultimately, that becomes more about the production than it does about the play. Here, Dowling seems to distinguish between Othello's play and text and Othello's production, as if the former possesses a more authentic claim to Shakespeare. And there's also an implication here that Elizabethan dress is the default as well, even though that was an artistic choice this production did not take. When you also consider what Othello follows in the Abbey Shakespearean repertoire, Dowling's response also seems to be a reaction against the more conceptualised productions of the theatre in years previous. This attitude towards performing Shakespeare is particularly pertinent considering the reception in the Irish press towards Othello. Peter Crawley pinpointed a sense of tradition at odds with the interventionist at the stage, but claimed that the show opts for the latter. Chris McCormick, writing for the stage, called it an adventurous production. A review published on the Culture Park Number Workhorse also suggested that the stage is an unusual creation. While this reduces the stage area, it does allow an intimacy not associated with the Abbey. Despite Ray and Dowling's claims that they were going back to basics, a production that leans heavily on emulating early modern staging practices is still regarded as adventurous on the Abbey stage. Of course, it is adventurous in that it is recreated on a proscenium art stage, but in the context of Shakespearean performance practice in the last 30 years, this leans towards the traditional end of the spectrum. Writing at this present moment, the Abbey Theatre has changed hands. The new artistic directors, Neil Murray and Graham McLaren, have taken over from Viet McNeil, and we should see plans for their first season in a number of months. McNeil, writing in Othello's programme, lauded Dowling's tenure at the Abbey and claimed that his commitment to programming the plays of Shakespeare was a tradition I wanted to re-establish. It remains to be seen whether Murray and McLaren are as interested in continuing this pattern of programming, but it is nevertheless significant that the final Shakespeare production under McNeil's tenure in 2016 of all years appears to be a return to so-called traditional Shakespeare. But yet this production still operates in tandem with ideas of innovation and adventurousness and sparks questions as to what may mean traditional or innovative in Irish Shakespeare performance. (coughs) Perhaps this, this might be symptomatic of most contemporary Irish Shakespeare's. If we take Druid Shakespeare as a recent example... Performing the history plays in a cycle and gender-blind casting may not be innovative in the context of recent Shakespeare performance practice. Yet its condensing and editing of the plays, its casting of of Ashing O'Sullivan as a Henry V, far removed from conventionally masculine and well-spoken predecessors, as well as its deliberate emphasis on regional accent, and the fact that it owes its marathon theatre structure to previous Druid Druid cycles as well, might argue against that. In any case... Othello is a perfect example of the often contradictory, nebulous position Irish Shakespeare performance finds itself in. Not quite marginal, not quite mainstream, not quite traditional, not completely iconoclastic either. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts, from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud.
For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.